Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 168. So glad you could join me. Uh, today's guest is David James. He'll be here in just about, probably under 10 minutes. Uh, but before we begin, I should say that Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. Uh, we just do this because we love poetry. I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Um, I, all that good stuff. Anything you can do to help spread poetry around the internet would be much appreciated. Uh, there's no admission fee here at the Rattlecast, uh, but we do ask that you share things and help spread the word because uh, the more viewers, the better. The more people we can get participating in the open lines later, the better, too. Um, after this uh, hour with David James, of course, we'll have open lines. So if you have any poems you'd like to share, uh, sit tight and uh, be ready to share those as well. I'll give instructions later at the end of the, at the break after this first hour. Now, um, we do like to start uh, with the Poet Respond poem. And We Their Light couldn't be here today. Uh, the timing, I think the, the early morning show made it a little difficult. But um, um, but the poem for this week was about Aaron Carter. And this was a, a, a person that I was completely unfamiliar with um, until this poem. But the poem was just so vivid um, that it made me care about Aaron Carter's death. Who I guess Aaron Carter was a child or a young um, recording artist star in the 90s and then had a traumatic life going forward. I'll, uh, let's share this poem. This is by Wheeler Light. Um and here, I'll read, uh, I'll read Wheeler's note first. Uh, about this poem, Wheeler says, um, Aaron Carter died last week, which is tragic. Aaron Carter was a musician, addict, and my first celebrity crush. When I was a child, his music opened up a world of love to me and began my personal exploration discovery. His story is a story of exploitation and neglect, but his effect was a ubiquitous joy that befell many millennials. I wrote a chapbook about him called I Want Candy, which was accepted for publication by two presses, but I pulled the chapbook both times because I didn't feel comfortable with anyone having access to it. This poem is elegy, a follow-up, a tabloid about a musician's work uh, the world was lucky to have. And so here's Wheeler Light reading his poem, um, Carter, Aaron Carter, You Are Dead and Never Read the Book I Wrote About You. Here we go. Aaron Carter, you are dead and never read the book I wrote about you. Once I loved you, seven, and what did I know about sex? I howled at your laser disc moon, found a boy with frosted tips, and kissed the fantasy of you for all of second grade. I didn't grow up to be gay, a disappointment to only the poems I write about you. The boy with your hair grew up to be an alcoholic. I grew up to get sober at 22, and you grew up to be dead. Aaron Carter, I don't know where they will hold your funeral, but tonight I am wearing black, wandering Greenwich Village, wanting to hear I want candy behind the ambient curtains of jazz. I want every basketball court to cut the net down. I want Shaq to take a knee and still be taller than me. I want Leslie to whisper your name and find you. Tonight, I pray to your pop and the world is a bisexual opera harmonizing cock. Tonight, I worry about Nick. Every anxious addict knows what it is to mourn a stranger they loved. Tonight, I want candy. Say lick. Tonight, I want high spirits. Say lift. Tonight, I want your memory to say live. Your fruity loop ambitions. Slender wrists. The first CD I ever owned. The poster on the inside of my closet door. My first show. 
Oh, Aaron Carter, patron ghost, a bright warning, pop star shooting across the past sky waning. Tonight I place a wish on you, a kiss on the shiny moon, rewind the track, the car is in the driveway, clean up the house, the party is over, you are coming home. And again, that was Wheeler Light with uh, Aaron Carter, You Are Dead and Never Read the Book I Wrote About You. I'm just a wonderful poem. And, and it's just the, the details of those poems and the authenticity just comes through. I mean, even though um, I don't know, I, I wasn't familiar at all with Aaron Carter. Um, just the, the feeling of that, of how much he meant to, uh, to some people comes through in that poem. So thanks so much for sharing that, Wheeler. That was uh, yesterday's poem at rap.com. Um, now we are going to uh, take a quick break and then jump right in to today's guest, David James. So sit tight and I will be right back in just a moment. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. As I mentioned, today's guest is David James. David James has published six books, six chapbooks, and has had more than 30 one-act plays produced in the U.S. and Ireland. His most recent books are Alive in Your Skin While You Still Own It and Wiping Stars from Your Sleeves. His second book, She Dances Like Mussolini, won the 2020, or 2010 Next Generation Indie Book Award. He's taught writing at Oakland Community College for over 20 years. And uh, here he is, David James. Hey, David. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Tim? I'm great. It's great to see you. I've been a fan of your work for a long time. I'm at the um, years and years ago, we started publishing you. I think in as long as I've been an editor, I think it was like twenty <laughs> two thousand four or five or so when we first published yeah, we, you. And we met one time at, at an AWP conference. I remember. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that too. Yeah. So it's great to see you again. Um, um, Thank you. I feel like I'm on the. I, I won the poetry lottery being on the the, the Rattle podcast. I just want to say. <laughs> Well, well, it's a, it's a lot of fun having you because your your work's always fun, and um and, and you've been really prolific lately because you sent us two books um like a like a year and a half ago I think, and then um and I was like oh yeah we'll have you on the show for sure I can't wait and then um and I asked you to be on the show and he said oh, I have two more books so now we have four books here, uh, four books in the last uh, couple of years um, yeah it, it's ridiculous really I mean it took me twenty five years to go from book one to book two. <laughs> 1984 was my first book, and then 2009 was my second book. So, you know, it, it seems like a miracle to have two books out in one year, let alone two years. Yeah, is there any explanation for that? Can you? Uh, is there a reason why there was this gap, and then all of a sudden this this deluge? Uh, no, there's no explanation. <laughs> you just keep writing, you know, regardless of what happens. And uh, the, the the 25 years, I mean, I had three kids and. And, you know, you're you're working full time and you're doing everything, but I was still writing and I was still sending things out. But, you know, Mm -hmm. nobody can explain this business, right? Yeah, for sure. Nothing makes sense. What's accepted and what isn't. Um, So so what do you want to start with? Um, We have four books to pick from. (laughs) (laughs) I'll start with the. I'm going to go in uh, chronological order. So I'll start with uh, A Gem of Truth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd like to start with a, a, a... a, a, a little prose poem after James Tate called At the Forty Winks Motel. It's on page 40. Um, and what's funny is I, I I purchased one of his books called Ghost Soldiers. Ghost Soldiers. I have a hard time saying that. And like I it was sitting around and then years later, I pulled it out and I was starting to read it. And there was a receipt in the book. And in the book, I had written... Portable darkness hmm. on, on the receipt. 
I have no idea <laughs> when I did it or why I did it, but that's what what was the genesis for this prospo at the 40 Winks Motel. What's in the briefcase? Sheila asked as she unbuttoned her blouse. Oh, nothing, I said. It's not nothing, she said, or else you wouldn't have brought it here. She unhooked her bra and slid her jeans to the floor. I was going to surprise you, I said. I was naked except for my socks. I like surprises, she said, turning to brush her teeth. I loved the curves in her hips as she faced away from me, running her fingers through her hair and spitting into the sink. When Sheila got into the bed with me, I put the briefcase on my lap. Here it is, I said, opening the case. Portable darkness. The room went dark, completely dark. Wow, she said, where did you get this? On the dark web, of course. It was the last one. That's kind of sexy, she whispered. I felt her body snuggle up against mine as I set the briefcase gently on the side table. As long as it's open, we'll have utter darkness around us, no matter what. Sheila kissed my neck, ending with a little tongue lick. Even in broad daylight, she asked. Yes, I said. Sheila ran her left hand over my chest. Even at the beach? Absolutely, I said. She wrapped one of her smooth legs over both of my legs. Even at church? I think I said yes. I'm not sure because it was dark and I couldn't see, but I could feel. And let me tell you, nothing feels better than portable darkness. That was uh, at the Forty Winks Motel from uh, A Gem of Truth, the first of four books we're going to be looking at today. Uh, by David James. And I'm glad you started out with a poem uh, mentioning James Tate, because uh, that's the the poet I think of when I read your work, is that my favorite James Tate poems, I kind of, it feels like that that style of um, of surreal playfulness and, and, you know, you're never quite sure exactly what's going on until, and, and there's a sort of a narrative going on. So, so why, uh, how long have you been drawn to, to James Tate, and, and what is it about that style that do you think you're drawn toward? You know, that's a good question. I I I I love James Tate's work. I don't always understand James Tate's work, um, but like his selected poems that won the Pulitzer Prize. I, if I if I if I'm having a drought or I don't know anything to write about, I will go to that book and just start reading any poem. And it's his use of language, the the way he. He, the way things just pop up in his language and surprise you. And that's what I want. I, I, I kind of like, I want that uniqueness, that surprise that James Tate has. But I'd like, I think in the best poems, I would like to wed that or meld that with some feeling or emotion or sentimentality even. You know, kind of like my one of my other favorite writers is Richard Hugo. Mm-hmm. Who, who, who I think is often like borderline sentimental, uh, but he goes right to that edge and then kind of pulls back a little bit. And, and I would like to combine both of those styles into a poem that is both surprising and unique, but also touching mm-hmm. and feeling. Um, 
you know, touch like I always I often say I want my poems to grab the best poems, not all my poems, of course, uh, to grab somebody by the heart and shake it in their body. Um, I, I would I would love that feeling, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad you describe it like that because that's how I feel reading your poems. Um, you know, we read a poem last week at the end of the show. Um, I can't remember the title of it, but it was the first poem of yours we published in Rattle, and um, and that's the feeling I always get reading that poem. Um, and um, it, it, there is there's there's something just so human about these stories that that you know, e- even though there's a surreal element, there's a very human element at the same time in all these this kind of work, which is just fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, they're not all that way. I mean, obviously, not all of the poems have that surreal element, but I do like the surprise. Mm-hmm. I mean, who is it? Robert Frost, right? Who said, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Yeah. So you want to surprise yourself as you're, as you're kind of like, where did that come from as you're writing? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and keep it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hear another one. Um, you know, another tactic that I use a lot. I was thinking, why do I do this? Is using epigrams to start poems. And I think part of it was uh, decades ago when I, when I had the, we had the three kids and life was, you know, upheaval. You didn't have the time to, to sit and, um, and just reflect. You didn't have three hour, a three hour block, you know, so you had to have something to write right away. So I, I get these epigrams, quotes, things my kids said even but um so this is one that uh is from harper's and the the epigram is children's belief in immortality is universal and um so it's those quotes and i get a lot of them from harper's (laughs) but i'll take them from anywhere you know Uh, and uh that's what started this poem so it's called immortality and truth Uh, what page page 32 And the epigram from Harper's Magazine, children's belief in immortality is universal. Hell, we all think we'll live forever. Even that old guy in hospice confessing to the nurses that it's all an elaborate hoax, that one day soon he'll stand up and dance his way out the front doors, flashing his middle finger at death. Dying is an accident something done by people who aren't careful, people who are stupid and drive their cars into trees, people who are in the wrong places at the wrong times. Most of my life so far, I've been in the right place at the right time, and that's how I plan to keep it. No hospitals, no hospices, 10 and 2 on the steering wheel, a decent distance between me and the car in front, no heroin or cocaine, no crystal meth, a baby's aspirin every day, vitamin C every other, no combat or war zones, no swimming with the sharks, no tightrope on the 18th floor after drinking, no prostitutes on Gratiot Avenue, no karaoke, karaoke with gangbangers, no Russian roulette, dynamite, nuclear fission, no Rottweilers, no knife-throwing friends. I'm just a big old kid, and immortality's my middle name. If I do die by mistake, my belief in God and the afterlife will hold me up. 
propel me into forever land where I can lounge on a cloud, throw lightning bolts, fly through the heavens, float down to earth and make wishes come true for those who can't see me, but still believe. And if that doesn't happen, if all this is an elaborate hoax, then when I die, if I die, I'm going to be one pissed off dude. And that was uh, Immortality and Truth, again, from uh, A Gem of Truth, um, one of the first of four books we're looking at today by David James. Um, and another poem that, that shows off the playfulness. It's, just, it's a lot of fun reading your work. I mean, that's just the, the fact of it. It's, it they're fun books um, and, and fun poems. I always enjoy seeing as submission years come in the queue. And... Um, <laughs> Well, thank you. Yeah, and uh, no better place to be than Rattle Magazine. I can tell you that. Ah, <laughs> uh, thanks. Um, so, do you remember? I, I'm always curious about people's progressions as a poet. Do you remember the first time you fell in love with poetry? Was there a certain poem that that sort of opened up the world to you? You know, um, I first started writing poems because I was a. <laughs> this is a, a little awkward story, but I, I was a basketball player, and I had a as a basketball, kind of a star player, as a basketball player, I had a cheerleader girlfriend. And uh, then I got, I got need driving the lane and, and I had a, a blood clot and calcium on the knee. I mean, I no calcium, a calcium. What is that called? I don't know. I had calcium. I had water on the knee and, and I had to be in a cast for six months. And once I was no longer the, the, star basketball player the cheerleader girlfriend dropped me <laughs> and so i couldn't do sports which is what i always did so i just was home sitting around with this cast and i started writing these god-awful love poems to this cheerleader and then sooner you know it just happened over six months i kind of i kind of liked doing it i kind of liked oh if i was mad at my parents i could write a you know die parents poem or whatever <laughs> um <laughs> So, so that's what happened. And then I was just lucky when I went to college, I took a creative writing course because I figured, oh, this will be easy because I, I like writing now. But I was, I was definitely going for uh, physics and mathematics. I was going to be a scientist. And I, t I, had, I took a couple of classes and I, I happened to have great teachers. Um, Stu Dybeck hmm. was my first creative writing teacher. And, uh, Herb Scott and John Woods. I mean, I just had some really great people and I f decided, well, I like doing this, so I, I'll go that way. And so the, for those first people I read were like Richard Hugo and uh, James Wright, um, Ann Sexton, uh, you know, they, they, those people just kind of blew me away. And, uh, there wasn't, I couldn't, I can't remember like one particular poem, but, mm -hmm. and then I just had great teachers and we had that was back in the day where, you know, people came for poetry readings to the university. This was at Western Michigan University. And we had like, I mean, you wouldn't believe we had Phil Levine. We had Merwin. We had um, Russell Etson. We had Seamus Haney. I mean, we just had the like the greatest people writing coming and giving readings and and it was like wow i want to do that i want to do that I, um so it was wonderful did you ever uh, that's very similar to my my sort of story and trajectory too and um 
you know, the same kind of, for me, it was James Longenbach at the University of Rochester, who um, was the, the really great teacher that I had that, that sort of inspired me to pull me out of the sciences. And uh, <laughs> so, so what did you, uh, <laughs> did, did you feel like you had to um, get permission to become a poet? Like to take that course, you know, because everybody, you know, everybody in your family is like, oh, yeah, you're going into the sciences. That's great. And then you say, oh, I'm going to be a poet instead. And it's not so great. So do you, uh, <laughs> did, did no, you, did you, you know why? You yeah. know why? The, the reason is because when I went to school, uh, my parents didn't pay any money. Hmm. You know, it was at back, far enough back. This was like 73 to 77. You could, you can't do this today. I mean, I'm in college. I teach at community college and you can't, you can hardly even go to a community college, um, afford the cost of that. I mean, it's cheaper for sure, but still, but back in my day, you know, you could work a, a summer job and make enough money for tuition and room and board for the new year. So my parents had no kind of control on me. You know, they were disappointed. They've since forgiven me for my choice, but, uh, they were disappointed, but you know, I, I could do what I wanted to because they weren't they weren't paying for it. Mm. And I never took a loan. You know, I, I got a master's degree. I got a doctorate. Uh, never took a loan wow. uh, all the way through. And nobody can do that today. My kids certainly couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, put, I was I had three of them in college at the same time, my, my wife and I. So yep. we were paying, paying through the nose. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I, can, I can't even imagine, honestly. But uh, <laughs> your time will come. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> but uh, but but so you had no reservations about switching, though, about about changing course. Well, I got I had worries. I, and when I did it, I kind of thought, oh, as I'm getting closer to the end, I thought, oh, maybe I should get a business minor and a, and a graphic arts minor, uh, which I did mm-hmm. kind of thinking, OK, well, if, if I, I could go into publishing or I could, you know. I'd, I'd have something to kind of fall back on a little bit, mm-hmm. but, and it kind of, it worked out. I mean, my first 20, 21, 25 years of, uh, of work, I worked as, uh, like director of admissions mm-hmm. of colleges and universities, um, university of Michigan, Flint and, uh, Siena Heights college. I, I was the director of admissions. So I was doing administrative business work and I was marketing and, you know, writing view books all while I was writing poems and I was teaching on the side, but it wasn't until 2001, my first, my first, first full-time teaching job was the, was the week of nine 11. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, that's when I started at OCC. Mm-hmm. I was a Dean there for five years before that, but I, I, I retreated as they call it retreated to the faculty, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is what I always wanted to do. But, I finally had the option. Um, so yeah, my first week, you know, I remember that cause I was in a training session the first week in, in September and, you know, September 11th. And that's when we heard about it and we all, you know, went home and they stopped everything cause we didn't know what was happening. Like, like, so the last 21 years I've been teaching full time mm-hmm. and, uh, and I'm retiring. Oh, I'm congratulations! Yeah, December thirty first. So, oh wow, um, that's coming right up. Yeah, congrats. <laughs> last semester. Yeah. So, uh, was teaching something that you always wanted to do, or in, you know, did you did you find that enjoyable? Yes, that's what I always wanted to do. I just couldn't find a full time job mm-hmm. um, in those first twenty years, twenty five years. 
but I always taught. I always taught part time. You know, I always had a class on the side teaching for one college or another. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, and, it was all. And it, what is it about yeah. teaching that you uh, that you find enjoyable? Oh, you know, I, I think I just wanted to emulate my teachers. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I loved them so much, and I I said that's what I want to do. I mean, I want to um, help people discover their talents and uh, and you learn so much yourself you know when uh when you're teaching mm-hmm. i mean you, you that's how you learn stuff i think is when you, you have to teach it to someone else but um it keeps you young you know because you're around all these younger people and uh they challenge you um and you challenge them of course <laughs> which mm-hmm. is the whole, the whole goal right yeah there's a great quote I, I try to live by with uh, by uh, an educator named Art Combs, and he said, "It's not what you cover that counts; it's what you uncover." Hmm. And and that's what we I, I think I try to do as a teacher, and I think most teachers want to do that. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's a great. Not just get through these chapters, but let's what you know. What does it mean, and how how does it apply to your life? Mm-hmm. Your writing. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let's hear another poem. Um, All right, let's uh, let's go to "Nail Yourself into Bliss," which right. was the second book published in 2019. <laughs> which, like I said, I, I just felt blessed to have this. Page 27. Um, this is a series of poems that I have. I I think I have 20 or 25 of them now, and part of it is my my. Uh, experience in writing plays so uh there's uh, i'll tell this brief story a long time ago charlie baxter used to, before he was mostly a fiction writer he used to write poems maybe he still does but uh i saw one of his poems and he had a series of poems called imaginary paintings hmm. and i just loved that idea like i can't paint but i could i could write about the painting i see in my brain hmm create the picture as a poem and so and i did that i and I, i wrote imaginary painting poems and i always credited charles baxter for it because it was his idea I mean, and but then i thought well why not a a play so i have these experiment in theater plays and uh this one's experiment in theater number five <laughs> um so i'll go with it blindfold the audience burns cinnamon candles as the orchestra plays instruments with their teeth grinding scraping plucking one actor runs across stage four or five times and then up the main aisle out the doorway another weeps on stage while a child pushes a squeaky stroller in circles a woman enters holding hairspray in one hand a gun in the other she climbs up a ladder fires the gun once and a pile of wet clothes drops from the flies everything stops for 10 seconds and then the music resumes the crying the stroller a man runs down the aisle jumps on stage carrying a jug of wine He sloppily drinks and yells, "Thank God I'm alive." The music stops, curtains fall. The audience rips off blindfolds and cheers. 
They all imagine their own play, the chase, the despair, the journey, betrayal, the demise. Look at their faces, in their eyes. Nothing can dull that shine. And that was uh, Experiment in Theater 5 from Nail Yourself into Bliss. Good advice from David James. <laughs> and uh, so, so you sort of come up with your own segues, because I wanted to ask about the theater. You, you've uh, had over 30 one-act plays produced, um, and, and both in the U.S. and Ireland, too. Um, yeah, how, how did you get into writing plays from poetry, and, and, and how are the two compare? You know, I, I, uh, I, I was teaching creative writing, and part of the creative writing requirement, it was, a, it was an intro to creative writing class. So it was poetry, fiction, short fiction, and playwriting. And I, I always thought, well, if I'm going to teach it, um, I, lo- I love plays. I, Samuel Beckett is probably my you know, absolute favorite playwright, and along with Edward Albee. But um, I figured I had to write some, you know, just to be genuine, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started writing these little one-act plays. And um, my first one, one of my first ones was, was done in New York City off-Broadway. Off and I thought it was just a 15 minute play. And we took my whole family there, you know, thinking this is never going to happen again. Well, I mean, I had six other, no, five others done off, off Broadway. And then, then in February this year, I mean, next year, one of my plays is being done in Brooklyn, New York for uh, four days oh, wow. as part of a, a short play festival. And we're going to, I'll be retired. So we're going to go and see the play and, uh, it, it it's so it's so unusual because I love it because as a poet nobody nobody reads your poems other than you typically <laughs> right I mean and and if you're lucky to get a just to find somebody a poetry reading a venue you, you read them out loud but nobody other nobody does so it's so so refreshing to write something and then sit back in the audience and hear other people say all your words and and act it out and and it's almost it's like a out of body experience because you're sitting there and you're laughing or you're and you don't remember every line that you wrote you know but you're sitting there and you're with the audience and you can't believe that you did that it's kind of like they actors and directors i have found typically make you look so much better than what you are (laughs) i mean (laughs) It's only a couple of plays that I've seen that that kind of bombed, and it was, you know, the actors just didn't didn't get it. But every other time, you have this vision in your head how it's going to look, and honest to God, ninety nine percent of the times it looks better than they they do something better than what you even imagine as the author of the play. Wow. Yeah. So I guess that's like a, a synergy type thing, you know, like you have one vision and then their creativity adds on top yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then I've had, you know, one play, I mean, several plays I've had done by different actors and different directors in different theaters. Hmm. And every one is completely different. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it's the same words, but the actors, you know, always say the lines differently. The directors have them doing things differently. And so it's, it's a, a unique, um, magical experience every time you have a play. 
and uh, I, I keep doing it just because it's fun. You know, <laughs> there's an audience where you really don't have much of an audience unless you're in Rattle Magazine. Then you have a, an audience. But other than that, <laughs> people don't know. I mean, most of my family don't even know, uh, you know, what poems I've written and, hmm. or, you know, that's the the plight of any poet, right? Yeah. Unless you're Billy Collins or somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I haven't talked to, I don't think on this show, anybody who, I, I think I have talked to some people who do plays, but we haven't talked about it. So how do you, how does it compare to the process of writing poems or short stories, which is, you know, everybody here is much more familiar with when, as far as just the, the mechanics of it, like, do you submit them to festivals? Is that what you do when you're done with them? And, and, is there anything else you submit them to? Yeah, there are there are magazines that publish. Um, mm-hmm. I have one coming out in a magazine called Phenomenal Literature, mm-hmm. and there are different styles. There's publication style that you have to put it in if you're going to submit it to a magazine, and then there's production style if you're going to submit it for uh, a festival or a, a, just to a theater to be considered. And um, and and you know the thing is, a play is an oral art, just like poetry. Mm-hmm. It's the closest to poetry, I would say. Um, and so, you know, this play that I'm having done in Brooklyn, New York, it's called Taking Over Your Life. And you'd like it probably because it's it's an intervention play. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, and we had an intervention right in this room right here. We had an intervention and, and a family member and um, it worked, you know, an alcoholic and we took him from here to a uh, a rehab center and it's been been clean ever since so it's 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 a wonderful story but um that experience stayed with me and i thought okay i want to write a play about that intervention but it can't be that one because that was in my personal life um so the play is about a 17 year old boy um and you know what his addiction is Hmm. writing poetry And his parents don't want him to be homeless and <laughs> without prospects in the future. So they have an intervention to stop him from writing poetry. Uh, so I got to play a lot with, you know, poetic, uh, um, just, just terminology. And <laughs> it was, it was just a lot of fun. It's a, it's a comedy, of course. Uh-huh. Most of mine are comedies or a little dark humor to them. But. Yeah, it feels like that element of uh, your poems would would lend itself really well to plays. Um, what is it that? How is it different to approach a play versus a poem? As you were talking, I was thinking about when I went to um, the, a poetry slam, the National Poetry Slam, for the first time, and they have the individuals, then they have the group. And I remember my first, I, the first time I saw a group. I was like, oh, they reinvented plays because <laughs> it's, it's like four monologues at once, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. it's 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 just so similar. Um, but but how do you is there a different way you approach it? You have any dialogue and different characters? Is there any difference between writing a one act play versus a, a poem? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think I mean, you have to think in terms of characters, you know, and, and different voices and you know, there's always, there's got to be some kind of, or we call it a concept, you know, a situation plus conflict. You, you got to, you have to have that in mind before. Um, but I, I, the, the, the similar, the similar part about writing a poem is that you don't, I, when I do it, and I think most playwrights would say this, you don't know where you're going. You don't know where they're taking you, where the characters are taking you. You just have to follow them. But if you create 
interesting and kind of vivid characters in your mind before you start writing and then you put them together with a certain conflict which you know you know what the conflict is you you, you just follow them then mm-hmm. and and they usually take they take you someplace i mean your it's your brain taking you someplace yeah. but it feels like an act of discovery which is the same in poetry mm-hmm. you know i i i never know where a poem is going to go and I think, again, I think it was Robert Frost who said, if I know where the poem's going to go, I don't want to write it. Mm-hmm. You know, because he wants, you want that act of discovery in writing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, I'd i say visual artists, too. We had a, um, um, a documentary produced in our small town about the local artists. And I was struck by how they all, every single one, it profiled like the six local artists in their studios. And each one talked about the same thing, about not knowing where the art was going to go and letting letting something subconscious guide them and not having trying to force what you impose on it. It's just a universal thing where this is how we create things by it's like, it's always this sense of not us creating it and um, right. the characters guiding us or someone else guiding us, but not us. Um, how do you, because, because your, your poems are show that maybe more than anybody we've had on the show, I think just the sense of playfulness and letting them go wherever the hell they're going to go. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I always think back too to a line in the, in Zen and the art of archery where they talk about how you, um, the, the way to shoot an arrow is the way a, a child lets go of a toy because uh, the child doesn't think I want to play with this different toy. He just moves from one toy to the other. And there's that, not a, not a sort of a slight, the slightest um, inkling of regret or anything when the child lets go of the toy. And, and that's how, you know, artists have to make their art. So how do you enter that space of, of just playfulness without having to worry about if anybody's going to like this at the end, or if you're going to be able to publish it, or if it's ever going to be on stage? How do you, how do you approach a poem like that? Uh, that's a tough question there, Tim. <laughs> do we have like six hours? No. <laughs> um, it's, you know, you have to try to think, okay, I'm, I'm, I, I, no censorship. I, I'm not going to censor any thought or idea. Again, that's maybe theoretically. The, theoretically, you're thinking that, but it, it's harder to do in real life. And 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 just take whatever premise and, and whatever tangent comes and and go with it. Um, I, I mean, I think of when you were talking. I was thinking of Friedrich Nietzsche, and he has a, a he defined maturity to be mature, maturity as to have regained the seriousness of a child at play. Ah, that's great. And, and, and I, you know, that's, if, if I had something above my writing desk, that's, that's it. Um, regain the seriousness of a child at play. And that's, that's what I want to do. I want to play. I want to play with language, play with ideas and, you know, juggle them. <laughs> Feel what, what are they? How do they apply to me and and to the people around me? And and sometimes you just go off on a, a tangent. You know, my wife or my not my wife, my mom would often say, and she's still alive. She would often say, you know, that why did you write that? Um, is that what you believe? And I said, no, that's not what I believe. I just that's that's where the poem went. <laughs> I mean, and and we've any writer I think has had that experience. Uh, you just follow the poem you follow the the smell of the poem wherever it goes yeah yeah that's a great way to put it too um <laughs> well if anybody has any questions for uh, david james uh, leave them in the chat windows either on facebook or youtube and i'm happy to pass any along um but let's hear another poem david 
Okay, I'm going to go with a kind of like a uh, probably a sentimental poem, a little borderline poem on page 66 in Nail Yourself. Um, it's called The Little Girl Who Lived Here Is Gone. And I had two boys and a girl. And, um, you know, when, once the, once my daughter left, uh, we're empty nesters. And, you know, you, there's a, diff, a different feeling and you write about your life in different ways. And this is, uh, to me, this is trying to get Richard Hugo and James Tate together. The little girl who lived here is gone. I tried keeping you small, but life doesn't work that way. It's like we're all on a train. It's invisible and we can't see it. And we're moving along, though we don't feel like we're moving. And your mother and I are up front while you sit near the back, coloring pictures with crayons. The scenery looks pretty much the same, though it's all different and changing every second. And before too long, we step off into some puny little town, which is not a town at all. And you move up toward the front of the train as your children take a window seat in the rear, smiling and laughing at what they do not know. And that was the little girl who lived here is gone from uh, Now Yourself into Bliss. Uh, there's a question here from um, Attractive Fahey. Um, I'd be curious to know, what is it that inspires David to write a play? Is it an ordinary, everyday incident or from reading? And on that note, um, why a play rather than a poem? Yeah, some, sometimes it's a, you know, yeah, I, I, mean, I default to poetry always. And, I, and so that I'm always doing that. I'm writing poems. Um, to get to a play, I usually need a prompt or uh, somebody to urge me or some urge, you know, sometimes there's, there's a, I, for example, there's one uh, in Ireland, the one that I had in Ireland, it was called fake. So whatever happened in your, in your play had to, had to be fake. And uh, that's just intriguing. Kind of like, Oh, it's kind of like any of the prompts that, you know, you have at rattle magazine, mm -hmm. you kind of like, Oh, oh that's interesting. And you try to, find something that that fits it um sometimes you just have that idea like i had this idea for a long time of a of a a guy going to jump off of a bridge um you know lots of poets have killed themselves in the past but i was thinking okay he's he's going to jump off a bridge but when he goes to jump off a bridge somebody else comes to jump off at that same place and they start to argue hmm. because that's that's my place that's where i'm going to jump off the bridge no 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 i'm jumping off the bridge i was here first no no and so they start to argue so you know i kind of had that idea like oh that would be kind of interesting i wonder what would happen and you know after it boils and bubbles in you for a while and, and it's it's then it came, it came out you know and it's called Talk of suicide makes me hungry. The title, and uh, and so you know it's a man and a woman, of course, and so you know as they're arguing, and you find out their stories and why they want to kill themselves, and then while they're arguing, a third person comes, who's going to jump at the same place. So um, they end up not jumping, and they end up 
you know, going to plan the better plan their um, their suicide. But you kind of get the feeling they're not going to do it because they've kind of made a connection, the, mm. the man and the woman at this point. But um, and I, and I and I'm stuck on one axe, and I think that's because I've been a poet my whole life. I can't, I can't you know, you're always trying to condense and, and shorten everything. Um, I, I can get up to like 37 pages and that's, that's as, that's as far as I can do it so far, but may, maybe when I retire, uh, maybe I'll write a full length play. <laughs> so, so, uh, is there any limit to what you can call a one act? I mean, I don't know how. Well, yeah, typically a one act is, you know, uh, 80 pages or less. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it, I mean, it's it's a play without an intermission, so mm-hmm. it's how, however long people can sit without having to go to the bathroom, you know, yeah. without curtain <laughs> coming down. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, most of mine are probably ten to twenty pages. Mm-hmm. And and is a is like a page a minute usually for how yes. long it is? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a page a minute. Yeah, so, you know, like Samuel Beckett's End Game is ninety, mm-hmm. and that's 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 a one act, but man, it's. Uh, that's about as long as you could probably ask most people to sit without a break, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. An that, hour and a half. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, let's hear hear more poems. We have two more books to look at. Um, okay. Let's do another, another poem. Okay, let's go to Wiping Stars from Your Sleeves. Um, this one came out in 2022. And um, the first half are poems written in Michigan. The second half are poems written in Ireland. Because I had a sabbatical and we... My wife and I went for 30 days and we stayed in a cabin south of the Cliffs of Moher in a little town called Kilkey. And uh, that, that's, uh, that's where I wrote all the poems. And I, I only read Irish poets, so we'll get to that after this. Um, the first part we'll do in Michigan. On page 33, um, this is a poem called What We Do for Love. for my Aunt Jackie and Uncle Don. January 4th, and it's 51 degrees, sunny, no snow. It's Michigan, for God's sake, the middle of winter. I made dinner tonight, broiled mahi-mahi with brown-sugared carrots, artichoke and parmesan bites. It's love. You'll burn at the stake, stand in front of a firing squad, or swim to the bottom of the sea to find the lost ring thrown from the ship's rear deck when you love someone. Like my uncle, who's caring for my dying aunt and would buy the moon, pay any cost if it would make her better. Let her sit up and stare out back at the sun on the birdbath, on that small deer wandering through their yard. But sometimes... Nothing helps, not even love. And all you can do is be there in the room, placing a damp cloth on her forehead, squeezing her hand just a little too hard. Was that what we do for love from uh, Wiping Stars from Your Sleeves by David James? So. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's kn- knowing that uh, love will not save us, but, uh, but it's the best thing we have. That's, I mean, we learned that right over over years. Yeah, over time, for sure. Um, so, so I wanted to ask how you decide to organize books um, because you do have um, 
a sort of a, a more of like less of a thematic um, view through poems, like because your poems are so different in what they come from. They kind of start with something strange, and then seeing how f- strange you can take it a lot of times, or or just where something goes. So there's not it's not like you have a thematic elements going on. So how do you figure out how to how to put a book together? <laughs> I wish I knew. That's probably why I had twenty five years <laughs> between the first and the second book, as. Uh, I think I'm so eclectic in my writing that I don't, I mean, I do sometimes have series, like I have a, that the ex, experiment and theater series, and I have interviews, I have a bunch of interview poems, like interview with God, interview with the devil. Um, so sometimes I get on those, but I, I, I'm really hard at themes, having like a thematic um, book mm-hmm. and this is the wiping stars from your sleeves is probably the the most thematic for me just meaning the first half are <laughs> poems written in the US and in Michigan and the second half all have epigrams from Irish poets everyone and they were all written in Ireland in this little cabin um, but they go all over the place as well right so uh, I was trying to trying to imitate the Irish poets though in in some way mm-hmm. just having just reading only them and being there and living there. Um, and um, so, yeah, I have a hard time with that. I, I admit it. I, usually I just kind of try to connect, okay, there, what in this poem, a line, an image, a word connects to the next poem. Okay. That might work. You mm-hmm. know, it's, and I'll do it that way sometimes. And, mm-hmm. um I think in the last the last book we haven't gotten to yet. I, I have three sections, nothing personal. So I was thinking, okay, nothing like about me personally mm-hmm. between you and me. So then, yeah, relationships maybe, and then a beautiful end. So kind of poems about dying or not dying, but mortality and and, mm-hmm. and time. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We I, I've talked to a bunch of people who um, a lot of people lament the the sort of the tendency lately to have themes in, in books of poetry and they miss where it was just like, you know, good poems that I've written in the last five years. And it's just the poems there. And, and I think it does. It has to do with the way the publishing industry works now, where it's like you have to go through contests usually or, or, or open submissions. And, and there's so many books to choose from that it tends to be thematic books that stand out in just the reading process. So, so do you, do you feel like uh, taking a stand for, for not having strong themes? Cause yes, a lot of people miss that. Yeah. I take a stand for it. I mean, I, my teacher Herb Scott had a book called groceries mm-hmm. and the whole book were, was about groceries. I mean, <laughs> he worked in a grocery store. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's the people who come to the grocery store, the things that happen in a grocery store. It was wonderful. It's a wonderful book. It was nominated for a Pulitzer prize, but, uh, <laughs> You know, from Pitt, Pittsburgh, but um, I could never do that. I just, I, I can't stick on one subject long enough. Just mm-hmm. like I can't read a full length play. <laughs> but I, I prefer, I prefer the, the variety mm-hmm. when I read a, um, a book of poems too. I like poems that are all over the place. I don't, I don't want to just keep reading one about yeah. nature and then the next nature and then the next nature and the next nature. Mm-hmm. It's interesting too. I, I always wonder if it, a lot of it has to do with um, it's easier to market something with a theme. 
you know, because you can describe what it's about and you can know what the cover is going to be and you can, yeah. <laughs> it just sort of lends itself. It makes the publication process much smoother if there's a theme, which, which sort of right. drives things. And then the, the people who are putting the books together, the people who are uh, choosing the books to publish, and it just kind of drives everyone toward themes where um, I don't know if it's as necessary as we... Um, I think, yeah, I think you've got something there. It's kind of like thinking in the movies, you can say, oh, I can see the poster. Yeah. You have uh-huh. the movie, but I can see the poster. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so um, somebody asked, too, uh, which kind of goes along with that. Um, Alan Harvey wants to know where you can purchase your books. And, and you don't, that I could find, have a website where everything is combined together. And um, um, is there a reason that you, you don't do it? Was, it was, you're one of the more difficult guests to promote, actually, because I just had to include some links to the book's publishers. But um, Yeah, I think I've just been too busy. Um, working and and i i I don't have a website yet uh that's on my list of things to do once i retire um to do that um no i know somewhere on amazon you can go to amazon and um a number of my earlier books they're just out of print Mm -hmm. uh, you know from carnegie mellon and march street press Mm -hmm. but like the one that won the uh, Next Generation. Yeah, I have a copy. It's a great book. It's too bad it's out of print. You're on that book, so and I, you're on the back cover of that book. That's right. That's right. Now that I, I, yeah. I appreciated that comment more than than any other uh, one that I've yeah, ever got. Pleasure. Um, <laughs> I have a whole bunch of questions here. Um, so first of all, has, um, Dick asked just me: Has a non-themed chapbook ever won the Rattle Poetry Prize? And the que- a better question: Has a has a non-themed chapbook ever been submitted? <laughs> I don't. It's very. Uh, you know, it's unusual to even have a submission of poems these days because people really, especially chapbooks, maybe people think of yeah. like, I have a f- you know few poems written around a theme, and and so they make it a chapbook because it doesn't fit a full length book or they're not ready for a full length book or whatever. Um, so so looking through the chapbook submissions, it's very rare, and I I can't even remember off the top of my head any. Uh, Okay, well now you're going to get a whole bunch of non. Well, good because I, I I'd like to. See, I wouldn't mind seeing that. I, I was I too. Um, somebody has who does the greatest hits? Do you know who does the greatest hits chapbooks? Oh yeah 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 yeah. I wondered if we if instead of like a um um best of you know a new and selected or whatever you do a chapbook of like greatest hits and why not submit that? I mean, there's no reason not to, but no one's really done that either. So the chapbook prize deadline is exactly uh, two months away. If anybody wants to put a greatest hits book together, um, feel go. free. I'd be open to um you know it'd be nice if a few of the poems weren't published already, but but uh, I don't know. I, I do that too. So um mm-hmm. anyway, that was just a sort of an internal question um, yeah. from Dick. Um, 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 Cindy Gore asks about the Ireland trip. So we'll stick with this book. We haven't read the Ireland poem yet. Yeah. Um, but Cindy Gore asked, did you feel any extra self-imposed pressure to write while you were there more than usual? No. No, 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 no. I, I was there 30 days. I wrote 42 poems in the 30 days. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Then we went to Scotland for 10 days since we were over there and drove around. I didn't write anything in Scotland, but I was, I was on sabbatical. It was, so it was kind of, I kind of felt like it was my mission to, to write. And uh, we, you know, what we, we traveled, we went all kinds of places. In fact, uh, I saw my play done in Ireland. Uh, not when it was supposed to be done. It was done for two weekends in Ireland and I couldn't make it. Well, but then we were coming for this month and I contacted the director and the and said, Hey, we're coming you think uh, you could, you know, we could meet you? 
And she said, well, let me see if the actors will do the play for you. I said, what? She said, yeah, well, let me check. Then she got back and said, yeah, they'd love to do it. So the actors redid re the play just for my wife and I oh, wow. with a, a glass of Guinness in the theater <laughs> <laughs> sitting there. Uh, and then we went and took them out to dinner and, and you know, uh, had a great time, made best friends in one day, basically. Uh, and it was it was glorious, you know, um, to see that. So yeah. we traveled around. We 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 did all kinds. Of, and I just took those ideas and the ideas from the, the poets that I was reading and uh, kind of stuck them all together. Yeah, well, you should, you do make it sound uh, like like I want to start writing some one act plays because it sounds like a lot of you get a lot of joy out of it. Yeah, it's great fun. Um, well, let's hear uh, hear another poem from uh, "Wiping Stars from Your Sleeves." Okay, this uh, this is probably my uh, my one of my only protest poems. It's uh, page sixty eight, um, and you could replace the first line with. Uh, with other cities and other times because it's happening a lot in the u.s this uh, it starts with g like god is the title of the poem but that's also the last line of a of a poem by john woods and john woods poem is called guns and uh, it was from his book called striking the earth which is one of my all-time favorite books of poems so it's, it starts with G like God, and there's a quote by Derek Mahone, uh, an Irish writer, who said, your ashes will not stir even on this high ground. This time, Virginia Beach, May 31st, 12 people killed. Tomorrow, it could be at your grocery store, your workplace, your favorite bar, a gas station. Next week, it could happen on your street as you grill hot dogs and red onions. This is not normal or sane. And where's the turning point? How many more have to die senselessly, kids, parents, employees, before something is done to keep guns out of certain people's hands? I'm bored with prayers and words of compassion. I'm sick of vague platitudes and political apathy. There is no justification possible that includes the bloody murder of innocence. It's time. It's beyond time. As the funerals wind down, the nightmares begin, the curses and regrets and pleas. We all dress and go out a bullseye on our backs, ready for someone's aim. And that was, uh, it starts with G, like God, from uh, Wiping Stars from Your Sleeves. Um, before we move on from um, from that book, um, I'm curious, we have an Irish Poets issue coming up. Um, and so, we, you know, I'm going through um, Irish poetry submissions right now. Um, in, in that deep dive into that for, for your sabbatical, um, how did you, do you, what did you find um, that was different between poetry in the U.S. versus poetry in Ireland? Is there um, a different sort of style or theme or feel that poems had that you noticed? Because that's, that's the fun thing yeah. for doing uh, tribute themes, which we always, we do, is just kind of, I get to learn for myself, what the, what the different feel is, even if you can't put your finger on it. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I felt, I mean, there are a lot of poems about 
the troubles, you know, the in Ireland, the between Northern Ireland and, and Ireland and, and England. Um, it seemed like there was a lot more to me, uh, kind of poems about the, the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that was what was so interesting for me as I was reading them and then I was writing poems there. I was, I was, you know, tides were showing up and cliffs in my poems, which I don't have in, in Michigan's and they're not in any of my poems, um, that I write here. So it was, uh, I think the landscape and, and the, the, the idea of the past, uh, seemed, seemed more prominent to me in the Irish poems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The connection to the past is what's standing out for me. Reading uh, poems, there's a sort yeah. of a, the the national identity and the history of sort of national abuse is um, mm-hmm. much more prominent a bond than I realized um, before reading all these submissions. I'd say. Yeah, and they're they're out of uh, there. There seem to be more um, more poems about mortality, maybe even you know mm-hmm. just kind of the end and. and um, and what you do at a funeral, even, you know, the, the wake idea, mm-hmm. which yeah, yeah. celebration, um, celebration of somebody's life mm-hmm. rather than lamenting. Yeah. Um, so we have one last book here, Alive in Your Skin, While You Still Own It, the most recent. Um, and so what can you tell us about this? And, and let's, let's hear some poems from this book too. This, um, this is a sabbatical book as well, hmm. but it's a different kind. I was looking down in my den, um, and I, I had a bunch of boxes down there, and I thought, okay, I got time, I can clean these out. So I pull these boxes out, and they're full of magazines that I had been published in in the '70s and '80s uh-huh. that I'd totally forgotten about. So I'm, you know, picking up each one and reading. Wow, I mean, I, these poems were not on any flash drive or on any computer. We didn't have that then. Hmm. So I picked out ten, ten of the uh, those poems. So 40-year-old poems and stuck them in together with new poems. Interesting. Uh, in that book. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I, I didn't notice reading, you know, reading through. <laughs> yeah. So 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 that's that's my uh my charge when I give somebody or somebody buys the book, I say see if you can find the 10 40-year-old poems in here. Oh, wow. Reading. Interesting. And so far nobody has. <laughs> One person got 5, 5 wow. out of the 10. Very but, interesting. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> And now, now you're interested. <laughs> I do. I want to. I want to read again, read through again, figure them out. <laughs> well, I was. I'll start with the first one uh, on page thirteen. Uh, it's called Medusa's Half Brother, and uh, I do like writing about like uh, superheroes or mytho- mythological people, but not the real ones. You know, the ones that are mm-hmm. like Medusa's half brother. <laughs> It's in two parts. I'll just read it. Anything you touch hardens into stone, gray, flat, granite, or concrete. You live in a brick house, the backyard dotted with statues of several dogs, a cat, your mother in a winter coat. Women fall in love with you too easily. They follow you home, adoring your massive shoulders, your hard, protruding chin. You can't help but invite them in, promising yourself only to talk this time. But when the words crumble down your shirt, you grab for the women, trying for just one kiss, flesh to flesh. 
There are times when you run through the fields, forgetting you were ever born, leaving solid footprints winding back in the path. Weeds brush your legs and freeze into cement, strands of wet hair. Every sidewalk leads into your front room. Some nights the stars break the sky into quartz and you find yourself stroking granite figures of women, the cold, damp furniture of your life. A great last line there. I love that. Uh, Medusa's half-brother uh, from the newest book, Alive in Your Skin While You Still Own It by David James. Um, so, so looking back at those poems that were 40 years old versus the poems now, it, what differences did you notice between the two? Was it, I mean, even uh, looking at poems of mine that are like 20 years old, it's very clear. I'm like a, like talking to a different person, you know, there's yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. You, I couldn't write, I couldn't write them today. Yeah. I, I mean, I would write something completely different, even if I started with the same premise as yeah. that poem. It, it was, it was strange. It was like you're, you're reading someone else's poem you know, after that period of time, it's not even your own anymore. Mm-hmm. And I could, I could see it, you know, I, I know, okay, I know I wrote that. <laughs> My name's attached to it, but uh, I would change a little bit here and there of the, of the old poem, but because um, you're always rewriting and you're always revising. But mm-hmm. uh, I, that's, that's an interesting um, comment, Tim. And that's, I wonder how many poems I've lost over the years, yeah. Because mm-hmm. if you don't, if you don't write it at that time, you know, it's it's gone, and yeah. you can write about it at another time when you're late, older, but it's not going to be the same poem. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's just all of these poems that that are like just flowing down the river, and we, we yeah. weren't there to, to grab grab that stick out of the out of the water. Yeah, that's a fascinating image to think of. And so true, especially for when you, when you go through those periods where you're not writing much, you know, and the, you know, and there's so the sticks are all just going by. Yeah. Yeah. It's just your, your, your life is going by. You're not capturing it at the same rate. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. So another thing I want to ask about too, that is, has your, has your writing process changed over the course of the years or do you sort of approach, do, do you think you approach problems the same way that you did 40 years ago? Yeah, I think I still do that. I still write longhand. I still doodle. I still, you know, keep it in in that version as long as possible, making re- revisions before I type it. And then once you type it, it's like, okay, it's no longer in your handwriting. So uh, you're you're a little you're a little more detached from it at that point. And then you can see things that you couldn't see, even though I I might swear, oh, it's done because I've worked on it for weeks and weeks. But then I go to type it and go, oh. <laughs> I see see things that, that I couldn't see in my own handwriting. <laughs> That's funny. Um, and, and so how do you know when a poem is done? Like, is there a, is a feeling you have? Or is yeah, it ever done? Yeah. No, it's never done. We know, we, we all know that. It's never done. But, uh, like, you know, the one poem, I tell the story in my classes of, of a poem you took called The Famous Outlaw. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a prose poem. But that poem I wrote like in 76 and in 2005 or something is one of the first poems Rattle took. It finally got published. So it had been rejected for 25 years. Uh-huh. And then, then it gets into the, you know, into Rattle magazine. And I, I tell that story because students need to hear that, you know, that just because you write something doesn't mean it's going to get published right now. And it may take 25 years 
for you to keep revising it and rewriting it and reading it and setting aside and finding it again and going, this, I like this and changing something and then sending it in. And it's, that's why I said we can, nobody can, can define this process or, or understand this process of what gets published and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. You just have to keep writing and believing in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we are about out of time. Let's read one last poem. Okay. I'm, uh, this is about making it, um, making it big. It's called, uh, on page 46. We'll end with a, a humorous one called killing. Yeah. It's about that. You know, the time your ship comes in when you, uh, you have everything. I want to make a killing once in my life, not with bullets, knives, or hand grenades, but a legal killing, the kind to brag about as I sit on my 75-foot cruiser, cruiser and the small orchestra plays through its Bach repertoire with my friends Brad Pitt, George C., Oprah, Julia Roberts, Madonna, Mick Jagger, and the Blue Man Group, while they all beg me to tell my story again. Of course, I'd have to put them off, not wanting to bore celebrities with a mere killing tale. But they'd whine and kiss my fingertips, and Halle Berry would fall to her knees in front of me, begging, pulling at my pant legs. So I'd start in on the it-first-occurred-to-me-when stage of the killing, memorized and rehearsed like a Broadway star. The key to the telling was my expression, the pause and contorted face that sent the crowd howling in delight. No one could believe the series of events, how each brick fell in place exactly when needed, how simple and childlike the whole plan was. And then to have pulled it off in broad daylight in front of the president and vice president to sense how close I was to eternal damnation, only to be laughing now on this yacht in the Caribbean, sipping Dom Perignon like city tap water. Yesterday, Clooney asked me to be his best man. And this morning, Angelina made me a godfather to yet another baby, Egyptian, I think, this time. Oh, yeah, I can see it all playing out like this after I make that killing, just as soon as I get these monkeys to fly out of my ass. <laughs> and that was that killing, yeah. Uh, <laughs> a good poem to end on from Alive in Your uh, and Alive in Your Skin While You Still Own It, uh, poems by uh, David James. David, thanks so much for being a guest. It's been a pleasure. Um, your poems are always fun and enjoyable like that. Uh, good examples uh, that we've read through um, each of these four books. So I hope people pick up a copies of some of them, whichever book you uh, found most interesting, or maybe all four. Uh, but Dan, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Tim, I want to thank you for uh, all that you do for poetry, though. I mean, you're like the poetry ambassador. To me, you're the poet laureate of oh. the United States. <laughs> well, thanks no, so no much. No offense to Ada Lamone, but <laughs> you do it all. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks so much, David. Yeah, thanks, great yeah. to see you again. Take care. Peace. Yeah, that was uh, David James with uh, four books we got to read from. Um, and uh, we got from A Gem of Truth. We got uh, Wiping Stars from Your Sleeves. All great titles, too, by the way. Nail Yourself into Bliss and uh, Alive in Your Skin While You Still Own It. So um, I'll try to put put all four links in the show notes after. I only put the last two, I think. But uh, I'll, I'll do that later uh, after after the show wraps up. 
But now we're going to go to open lines and see what you have to share. So sit tight if you would like to share poems. This is how you do it. Um, put up the, the description right here. So email your poems first to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. And then find the Zoom link, which I'm about to deploy. Um, I'm going to put it in the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube. If you're watching on Twitter, you're going to have to go to Facebook or YouTube to find them. Um, but uh, first, email your poem to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com so I can show them on the screen. And then follow the link over to share a poem uh, or two, possibly, depending on how much time we have, how many people we have in the uh, waiting room. Um, but uh, but if you'd like to just sit and enjoy the poems, then uh, then just sit tight right where you are and don't go anywhere and just keep watching on YouTube or Facebook, whatever, because that's the best experience. You get to see the poems, too, as, uh, as the poets read them. Okay, I'm going to be right back after a quick break with uh, more poetry. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Um, like I mentioned, we had a prompt this week. And uh, the prompt right here. Um, the prompt is... It was from uh, David Bowles. And it was a complicated prompt. And uh, here we go. This was the prompt for this week. It was, think about the geographical place that says home to you. It's flora and fauna, the distinctive shape of the land and the buildings there rooted... The people who feel like family and community, whose tongue shape sounds like your own. Then, even in so simple a form as a list, draw the most distinctive of those elements together and show in hints or explicitly how you are partly contingent on those specificities, how you emerge from that milieu. So that was the prompt for this week. And uh, I think uh, if, if you watch the Critique of the Week, you know I was like so sick. And, and I was sick at the end of the last show. I spent about just four days, just nothing but in bed, shivering under blankets. Saturday, finally, I felt a little better, but still run down. And Sunday, too. And I didn't write a poem this week, but um, I got a psych I could I could squeeze out a psych but that's about all I could do. But hopefully, uh, everybody out there uh, did a better job than I did and had a better week. Um, so let's go. And, and there, uh, let's see, we only have a few people trickling in right now. So maybe uh, maybe I have two poems, I think, if you'd like to share two. Uh, if you're on the Zoom, but if you haven't found the Zoom link yet, um, feel free to uh, join us. But here, let's go with uh, Dick Westheimer to lead it off. Hey, Dick. I'm doing much, much better, at least. Um, if you look back at um, at Sundays or at the Critique of the Week, I was so out of it. Um, <laughs> but I kind of kept going anyway. Well, and you could see, you know, <laughs> you could see at the last uh, Rattlecast mm-hmm. how at the end you were just sort of like, drifting off <laughs> yeah well i definitely felt it and i still like i i don't know if it was COVID or not because we didn't have any tests it didn't seem worth running out to a store just to get um but i did lose my sense of smell so looks likely likely <laughs> that that's what it was um but um but yeah i'm feeling better now though at least so i think this week is going to be back to normal but it's like sort of like a week detour where i didn't get to do anything which um i feel like a week behind now Enforced vacation. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I, I watched a lot of uh, Westworld, which is uh, it's sort of. Uh, I love the first season, and the rest are all kind of trash TV. So I just I caught up on Westworld. <laughs> but um, anyway, so what do you have to share with us, Dick? Uh, well, I actually did a prompt poem this week, Excellent. and okay. I'll do one of my poets respond poems. So I, I just sent in the prompt poem, which I'll read first, and then I have, uh, if there's time, the my poem four oh four error. Yeah, yeah, I think there's going to be. So, um, so yeah, let's uh-huh. hear the prompt poem first. Okay, and uh, uh, th- this prompt gave me 
gave me fits and I sort of finally figured out why. Interesting. Uh, and title is reminded by a poem prompt that my people have always been wanderers. I have lived here 46 years, but it is not my home, though I know the shape of my neighbor's tongue, the crack of the guns that pepper every day here, the crush of gravel of my lover's car approaching home, how different it is from the delivery man's, the rain sleeting over the pond, sheeting over the pond. If I am quiet enough and there is a lull in road noise, I can hear how the rain percolates in my garden, how it gurgles the life from the farmed out field, how the coyotes howls darken in deer season, how the fire crackling across our back fence depends on what sort of scrap jeans hauled back from a teardown job. Then there's the guy down the lane who mows and mows and mows. And though I judge him when I'm home, when I walk his trails alone, just my elevated pulse and frost breath for company, that's where I am for a moment, home. Pulse, frost, breath, moment, home. A great poem. Uh, Dick, and, and uh, you, one person who lives in a really interesting place, living on a farm there and with all that beauty and... And everything around you yeah and you think after 46 years that would have been it is what came to mind mm -hmm. but when i sort of sort of processed it poetically it i couldn't claim it as home which was very interesting yeah I, right. kind of kind of depressing mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh there's that um so uh that I, I am my next poem is a 404 error mm -hmm. and I did all of this is true or much of it or some of it um, but I have just had intense schadenfreude at watching the incredible dissolution and and sort of like various explosions on Twitter of, of what dysfunction does to a marginally functional platform yeah so. me too because i just um you know facebook is sort of dying unfortunately and, and rattle got a lot of um reach out of facebook for years you know facebook used to work great and now it's just um i think they're trying to make too much money and and not treating their their pages and organizations very well and there's just no reach left anymore so um and and then the demographic issue too, um, where I think there's like nobody under forty uses Facebook anymore, or very few people anyway. And um, and so I was thinking to move, you know, I started to move into Twitter a little more, and, and thinking how I could make take more advantage of Twitter. And then and Twitter seems like it's imploding too. And I'm thinking, oh, I got to get a Mastodon for Rattle, <laughs> but I don't know which server Ma to Mast add. Mastodon so. might be an interesting, you know, or Mastodon or something like that, mm -hmm. where there are some affinity. Mm -hmm. um, platforms that that can gather folks i mean facebook still has that for my poetry community mm -hmm. but twitter's is just sort of fragmenting and you know, yeah and I've, I've seen it happen many times like we um like there used to be a, just wonderful groups over the years and then something happens and the, the groups you know that the technology that kind of binds it together implodes and then there it goes and you have to find a new home <coughs> so um, i don't know we'll see what what goes on with twitter but um, but here's 404 error um, talking about all the the Elon Musk drama, which um, is everywhere. All anybody wants to talk about too is Elon Musk. I'd say so. Let's hear it. Well, well, and this is about my personal drama with Twitter. 404 error. 
I really didn't quit, quit Twitter. I slow rolled it, popped open the app for a few minutes at the end of the day, like I would a Bud Light or ice cream I'd sneak before bed, sometimes a cookie, or three, which I'd quit too. A changed man, I tell you. A new me, and then Elon showed up. It turns out he was as good at Twitter as I was at small engine repair. I once stripped the linkage between throttle and governor, trying to fix an engine revving issue. And while it's unfair to say I was an idiot, the thing did run out of control. One piston quit, and the other didn't take the load. Nothing gurney my mechanic couldn't fix, though the grass kept growing while he did his thing. It was not the first time I'd amused Gurn and not the last, which is to say, who can look away from DIYers who fuck things up? Like me and Elon. And sure enough, his fixing looks a lot like me shooting heptane into the carburetor as I stand back and watch the engine wind and spit spare parts out the sides. Only uh, with the tweet machine, it's employees hitting the streets at real Jesus verified at last, blue check fakes taking down names, N-words galore, ad buyers heading for the door. And all that was before company IT security folks heard the gears grind and walked out, leaving the door open behind them. So here I am scrolling my feed in between getting these lines down and throwing back Oreos washed down with Edie's pralines and cream, dreaming I'll real-time read the one last tweet that sets the whole damn tweet machine on fire. And there's a 404 error. And I think that's a, that is a perfect metaphor, it feels like, for uh, for what Elon Musk is going through trying to get a handle on it. It's like me, me trying to fix a four-stroke engine or something. I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that, Dig. A great, great poem, great metaphor. Thanks, Tim. See you later. Yep, take care. Bye. Was, uh, uh, Dick Westheimer with a 404 error and uh, the prompt poem for the week. Um, let's go to uh, Barbara Taylor next. I think Barbara might have been on once. But yeah, Barbara's been on before. Hey, Barbara, how you mm-hmm. doing? Yes, hi. I'm good. How are you, Tim? Oh, I'm well, doing great. Hope you're getting better. Yeah, yeah, getting better slowly, uh, slowly. But uh, you know, still having to hit the cough button and uh, and hiding out a little bit <laughs> in between. But um, but definitely feeling better than I was a few days ago. Um, but anyway, what yeah. do you have to share with us? Um, I have a poem that fit the prompt, um, but this was actually inspired by one of your ekphrastic um, Uh challenges a while back, and and then it was picked up by an online publication. So, um, yeah. Very cool. What what publication is that? Uh, Poetica Review. Ah, very cool. Okay, excellent. So, and the title is Line Drawing. Okay, I've got it. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay. If a line is drawn down the center of the country... I live on the eastern side of it. I used to live in the west, and before that, I lived on the line itself. Where I now live, I draw lines of my own to make a sense of place. Where oak becomes pine, and Spanish moss begins to drip toward bayous pooling outside their so-called banks. And the knobby offspring of bald cypress grow up from placid pools to meet their mother trees. How can I write such beautiful words about the verdant humidity of the east and miss the dry desert west so much? I am a fool. 
the West has forgotten my name by now. If ever I travel to see it again, I will erase my lines as I go. Uh, great poem. I love that that slow transition at the, toward the end. Good job. Uh, that was Barbara Tyler with line drawing. Thanks, Barbara. Thank you. Um, next, let's go to um, um, Leanthe uh, Rangan. Hi, Tim. Hey. I'm so happy to see that you are feeling well. Yeah, I'm definitely feeling better. I'm still, it's still, uh, I, I, I'm, glad I, I'm glad I look better. <laughs> <laughs> I can pull it off a little bit better, I think. I still don't feel perfect, though. It's going to be a while, I think. Yeah, it takes a while to um, get to 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I did sleep without NyQuil for the first time last night. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> That's an improvement. It, it definitely is an improvement. Um, okay, so what, uh, what do you have to share? Okay, um, so this poem, it says, No Hotels on Galapagos Islands. Teeming with life, but unpeopled. No dwellings, no natives. Tourists sightsee in the mornings and return to the ferry for meals and a welcome tree tomato juice. Our cameras have no charge left, but are loaded with unusual shots of grinning seals and blue-footed boobies. These islets say, come, click, go. Leave the atolls pristine no water bottles or gum litter, and no unwitting germs. Yesterday, the captain and the crew had hosed our hands, feet, shoes, and handicapped us with gosh um, fins to watch tortoise and sharks up close. Did the fish smirk at our footwear? Today, we are on a different island as we paddle by mangrove thickets, searching for fauna in monk calm. We have entered a musing muted zone. A cormorant squawk breaks the shush. I look at the waters, they beckon me. I want to be a stowaway here. Then I see a fugitive, a cheat, a savory aura, a loud image, an empty lace potato chip packet, flares like a shipwrecked survivor. My Darwinian hunger is sated to chase origins and connections, but I have a new indelible stain of spud crumbs and a salty mylar. Thank you. Hey, Nivi, great to see you. Thanks so uh, much for joining us. And I guess I had it on mute. Sorry, everybody, for myself for a minute. I had a cough and didn't unmute it, but uh, but I'm back. So, uh, so Nivi, how are you doing no today? <laughs> I'm doing good, thank you. I'm glad that you're on the mend. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And I'm glad you could join us. So it's uh, so it must be like late at night there in India, right? Um, it's twelve five a.m. Oh, <laughs> so pretty late, yeah. But still, better than uh, oh, so very early in the morning, yeah. It's, it's rattle. I'm so excited to be here two weeks in a row. Yeah, yeah. So glad we could have you. Thanks, Nivi. So, um, so what is it that you'd like to share? 
Um, I have a prompt poem. It's titled Home. Uh-huh. Um, it's, I mean, like what Dick was saying, is any place truly home? I really don't. I think it's what we make of it that makes something home. Mm-hmm. Where we live can be home if it is. Yeah. Yeah. Happy and joyous, full of love and all that thing. But I mean, everybody has some place that they call home, mm-hmm. hopefully, even if it's within themselves or outside. And I decided to choose my native place of Chennai, where I live, as you all know, which is on the east coast of uh, South India. So this is basically what an early morning looks like there. Excellent. <laughs> oh, and I used a couple of Tamil words in the poem. Uh, the explanations for which I've written downstairs and also shared a few photos, hopefully, ah. which will explain better what I mean. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. Yeah. Let's hear the poem. Then we'll look at the, the photos too. Home. Chennai. The melodious chime of temple bells, ding dong, wakes me up daily as the first blush of dawn streaks the horizon. Kausalya, Supraja, the rhythmic morning hymn that starts every day plays loud and clear from every household. A quick glance outside my window shows me Madisar-clad mummies drawing mark columns on their front porch. A flat cellar cycles past, and the scent of fresh malibu wafts up to me. Watching the pink creep over the white foam-tipped waves of the beach, I also see the salty brief play with the stray newspaper clippings used to wrap up hot cuddle while young children engage in a game of football on the shore. From next door comes the shrill whistle of the kettle, mixed with the scent of freshly brewed filter kapi. All too soon, the sun is high in the sky, the weather a hot 30 degrees Celsius, and ladies in fashionable pantsuits head out for work. So this just shows the dichotomy that is there in Chennai. You have both the uber traditional and the uber modern and both sort of mix very well so yeah uh, just some some exam explanations for some of the Tamil words so the the shloka starting kausalya supraja it's actually from one of our hymns called venkatesha supravadam it's played every day in almost all temples and households during this specific time called Brahma Muhurtam, which is supposed to be like the time when your mind is freshest and purest. It's between 3.30 and 5.30 in the morning. Hmm. And uh, trust me, since this is for God, you have to get up and be showered before that happens. So oh, wow. that's, that's, that's that as well. Yeah. <laughs> and then, it's very early, but that's when days usually start here and usually ends pretty early as well. Yeah, I would imagine if you're getting up that early, yeah. <laughs> and then Madisar is, I mean, everybody knows that the traditional Indian dress is sort of like a sari. A regular sari is six yards long. A Madisar is basically a nine-yard sari. Ooh, wow. And it's worn for the first time by a woman on her wedding day. Mm. So that is the sari she gets married in in South India. So it's only after that that she's allowed to wear it. Um, these days, it's usually worn by people in my generation for just special occasions. But uh, people of older generations wear it as an everyday dress still. Uh, mommy is just a Tamil word that means auntie. It can be anybody, but mm-hmm. a married woman is usually referred to as mommy. A mark column is basically rangoli that is drawn with rice flour. So you mix powdered rice flour with water to form a paste, 
and then you have to draw with that on the floor. So the problem with that is as you're drawing, you can't see anything. Oh. So you just got to go with the flow to be like, okay, I'm drawing a line here. I'm drawing a line there. Only once it's tried, you see what you've actually drawn. Oh, wow. That's, that's fascinating. But that's, yeah. but that's something that's done every day. So uh, women usually get up, have a bath, wash the front porch or the just outside the front door of their house and then draw this and then only start the day so this is something that's done in almost every south indian household and then malipu is just the tamil word for jasmine flower kadala is peanuts so at the beach so from the terrace in my house in chennai we get to see the beach hmm. and what the most popular snack at the beach is basically salted roasted peanuts yummy snack and finally kapi is just the colloquial term that uh, tamilians used to call coffee so it's just a uh, kapi so that's that's just what it is mm-hmm. oh that's great yeah thanks so much for sharing that and then there's these photos too so um so um, i'm looking at the first one now that the woman that's actually me on uh, my wedding day oh wow <laughs> wow that's amazing <laughs> beautiful yeah the transformation is just <laughs> yeah and then um mm-hmm. and that's the matasar oh i see so this is um so the oh i should have been showing these pictures as we uh we went so this was the um, um i can't remember the word but the the drawings yeah and then oh there's yeah look at that oh that is so cool the the how, what how do you say it again a uh, mycolum and then i have just two photos of the colum Mm-hmm. one that is used during festivals and which is a bit more elaborate as you can see mm-hmm. and the second column is sort of a simple one that is usually done on a daily basis yeah yeah i got everywhere. you mm-hmm. and finally the fourth one the the flower on my head that is the jasmine flower of the malipo oh very cool yeah, well thanks so much for sharing That's these Nidhi. this is great yeah, very cool to see it, and great, you, great poem. Uh, you know, conceptions of home and all those details. Really wonderful to learn about and, and share. Thanks so much for sharing. Um, and did you send something else? To Thank you, Tim. Have a great day. Um, did you? Do you want to do the uh, fast? Um, if there's time. Yeah, yeah. Can. There's there's time. <laughs> so um, yeah. So you, sure. you sent a poem too from the Ekphrastic Review. So tell us uh, what this is. So this is basically it's sort of what you do on a monthly basis. They do it on a bi-weekly basis. And I've been submitting there for, I think, quite a while. And this is, I think, quite an old poem, probably sometime last year, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. The reason I sent this link is since we're talking about Chennai and India, the painting, as you can see, is a traditional Indian-style painting. I mean, traditional Indian. We have many traditional Indian mm-hmm. styles of painting. Each sort of state has its own. This is just one of them. It's called the Mithila style of painting. Mm. And um, what stood out to me in this is basically the two characters on either end are sort of depictions of weddings of our gods. And you can see that the woman is highly represented in the painting. So that is basically what's struck out to me. And that's the poem I wrote about mm. here. Um, if you scroll down, probably the fourth or fifth poem is mine. It's called I Am Woman. I just couldn't find one where just mine was there, so I had to send it like this. Sorry. Yeah, no problem. No problem. I'll find it. It's titled I Am Woman. So we have it ready. Go ahead whenever you okay. are ready. <clears throat> okay, cool. I am woman. I am mother. I am daughter. I am sister. I am aunt. I am grandmother. 
I am wife. I am woman. I am in the fish that swims in the sea. I am in the key that opens your locked dreams and mine. I am in the DNA that binds the world together. I am in the circle of life. I am woman. I am the tears in your joy. I am the sorrow in your laughter. I am the calm in your anger. I am the crowd in your loneliness. I am woman. I am mother. I am daughter. I am sister. I am aunt. I am grandmother. I am wife. I am woman. Excellent. That was an Anivity to Karthik, of course. And this is uh, I Am Woman from uh, um, the Ekphrastic Review, which is ekphrastic.net, where you can find that. If you're not familiar with the Ekphrastic Review, um, it is a wonderful, wonderful journal that just does what the Ekphrastic Challenge is, but but they do it, like you said, every other week, I believe. And um, they've been doing that for a very long time. I'm not sure um, who, I'm not sure who's came first, actually. I wonder if I, when they were established. But um, around the same time, I think it was, that we started the Ekphrastic Challenge. Um, I can't find a start date. But, uh, but they've been doing it for a long time, so do check that out. If you like the Ekphrastic Challenge that Rattle does, um, find um, the Ekphrastic Review at Ekphrastic. And that's a tough word to say, so I'll spell it. Uh, it's a tough word to spell, so I'll spell it. E-K-P-H-R-A-S-T-I-C, which is the word for writing about art. It used to be sort of... It used to be descriptive back, you know, in the in the um, Enlightenment era. That's where the word comes from, um, or, and uh, and then it evolved into making art after art. So that's that's what it used, that's what it is now. It's almost like it started out as reviews almost of art. But um, there you go. But Nivy, it's great to see you. So glad you could join us on live for the first time in a while. It's always a pleasure seeing you. And uh, take care. Have a good uh, good night. Thanks, Tim. Have a lovely day. Yep. Bye bye. That was on Nivity to Karthik with uh, two poems. And that's going to wrap up the um, the Zoom call. Actually, I'll leave the Zoom open just in case anybody else wants to uh, jump on. Um, but let's do, we have a few more poets who sent things in but couldn't be here at the moment. And um, I think we have a little bit more time. I'm going to do, I want to share a couple, maybe two poems from the random button. Let's see what, what random comes up with. I thought maybe we'd share... Um, um, today's poem, too, from Karan Kapoor. Maybe let's do that first. Let's share, uh, let's have Karan uh, read his poem. Um, today's poem, Gazal for, or Guzzle, I should say, for Dita. Here, let's, let's have, uh, let's hear today's poem on the Rattlecast, since we're doing a, a Monday morning show, for morning for me, anyway. Here we go. Guzzle for Dita. Guzzle for Dita. There is no harm in times of darkness to use God. Light, love, is sees time and again, else we lose God. The devil measured every pain he could draw from our bodies, straightened his back and asked, now who is God? He stood at your door, you averted your eyes. Oh, dying mother, with whom did you confuse God? On certain nights she screams curses at Krishna. There are times, oh despair, when we cannot choose God. You blew on the first morsel, then offered each idol. Now your unfaithful tongue burns each time you abuse God. Best to let the past remain in the past. 
It's best to let the past remain in the past. She weighs the beads of her rosary to seduce God. Take me into your arms, O omniscient one. Take me, take me into your arms, O omniscient one. With endless prayers all night, unafraid she cues God. The world is full of binaries. God is singular. The world is full of binaries. God is singular. Who divides better than morning news? God. On each of our arms, the black moment we are born, the words suffering, sorrow, and death tattoos God. As a child, I was told there is one answer to all. Chaos, caste, guilt, grief, grace, a bruise, God. At the end, at the end we forget more than we remember. It counts we are blessed. Who cares by whose God? My mother sits by the moon, sister, a candle. My mother sits by the moon, sister, by a candle. I know I am not alone who interviews God. His crimes forgiven for centuries enough now. His crimes forgiven for centuries enough now. We'll execute, fetch the hangman, bring a news, God. Your name is her offering, Karan. Your name is her offering, Karan. The day she dies, you will lose your name. And you will lose God. And that was today's poem from uh, Rattle.com, um, Guzzle for Dita by Karen Kapoor. Um, and let's do, uh, let's do uh, a couple random poems, too. Why not? Um, this is a poem by Robert Carr from Rattle number uh, 61. Um, a touching poem, if I remember right. After mother dies, most men need a lover. So here's Robert Carr. About this poem, um, Robert says, um, In January of 2019, my father will turn 90. At Thanksgiving dinner, at the Thanksgiving dinner table this year, he talked about his lover, Rosemary, um, who was my mother's best friend before she died in 2003. Rosemary has developed slowly progressing dementia over the past several years, and with sadness and great affection... He shared the story of this poem, including Rosemary's statement. This story reminded me of the power and the human connection and the courage that's sitting at our own table. And so here's uh, Robert Carr. After Mother Dies, Most Men Need a Lover. After Mother Dies, Most Men Need a Lover. Father's lover sits on the paisley sofa where my mother rested before she went to bed and died. It's been fourteen years since the water ran, since my mother refused to get out of the shower because hot water felt so good. In the intervening years, my father's lover has lost her mind. She says the most beautiful things. Today, she said, I know I love you, but I've forgotten your name. Yeah, very simple and touching little poem there, commemorating that, that one phrase, which is beautiful at the end. That was Robert Carr with After Mother Dies, Most Men Need a Lover. Um, 
let's see uh, what else we have that can pop up. This is um, let's see. Uh, this is how to pray. Uh, this is by Sage Cohen, and this is from uh, Rattle Number Forty One, the single parent poets issue. Um, Sage Cohen says, here I put this on the screen, Sage Cohen says, Poetry became my scaffolding of self as I moved through divorce into single motherhood. What I could not tolerate, I could witness. Grace became an invention of image and language. Poem by poem, I wrote myself from broken to healing to whole. So here's Sage Cohen's poem, How to Pray. How to Pray. I follow two steps behind my son on the gravel path as he shouts hello to ducks. The squirrel has lost a stripe of fur down his back. I should have married someone else. A person can die of motherhood. Even the flame maple's promises have stopped sleeping in the house. He was gone years before he was gone. First, he shot a doorway through me, one complaint at a time. Then he stepped through the place my body once was and kept going. He said he wanted to keep trying, but what did that mean in the absence of trying? God, the cherry blossoms are in bloom. This morning, my son made me an arrangement of flowers shredded with scissors. I married a man whose hands were unmade to please me. I hold the vase like a torch. And again, that was uh, Sage Cohen with How to Pray. Um, let's see, maybe we'll do one more, too. We have five minutes left. I like the shows to be two hours. Uh, let's do... Uh, Let's do, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? I don't remember anything about this poem. I remember I liked it though. I'm going to have to read it. This is from rattle number 37. Um, well, of course, I mean, we published it, so I like it, but, um, let me cough and then I will, uh, and then I will read it. All right. So this is a, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too by Edmund Jorgensen. And this was back, we po- only posted this in 2013. I don't know. For some reason, I didn't include the note, so um, I'm not sure what his note was. I think I'm going to add it after the show, though. Um, um, but this is Edmund Jorgensen with uh, Wouldn't You Like to Be a Pepper, Too? So here we go. Um, Thanks for asking. Fitting in is pleasant, and I'm not ashamed to say it, but I'm not your typical conformist either. Sometimes on a Wednesday night, I'll go to a restaurant, something ethnic, preferably Mexican, maybe Greek, and just sit there, sipping water, nibbling free chips or pita, not ordering anything, just watching people watch me. I like the feeling that America is with me, is interested in how I spend my days and dollars, cares what I wear. I don't even mind the full-page ads in magazines. In fact, I cut them out and tape them to my mirror, where I can feel them willing me to use a different hair gel. I like going to the cinema, tiptoeing out a couple minutes before the movie ends, and waiting in the lobby for the crowd to exit, the human flood to surge and ebb and surge around me, till I close my eyes and feel for one perfect moment as lost and and found as the snowman buried in an avalanche. And that was a... Wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? And it was funny because I um I remember I, I love the last line. 
and I was remembering as I was reading that poem um, that I loved the ending, but I couldn't remember at all what it was. So right around the the waiting to be in the lobby for the crowd, I was like, oh, something good's coming. And that it is, yeah. For one perfect moment, I felt as lost and found as the snowman buried in an avalanche. A great metaphor there. That was, uh, wouldn't, you too, wouldn't You Like to Be a Pepper Too? by Edmund uh, Jorgensen from Rattle Number 37. Okay, so I think that's going to wrap up the show. Let's do the Saiku really quick. Uh, now, the Saiku for this week is uh, based on this article that I came across. Um, and I'm not sure I buy the science behind this, but, but what can you say? It, it was a little interesting to think about, though. Um, and this is from the Association for Psychological Science. And here is the, uh, the article. Was I happy then? Our current feelings can interfere with memories of past well-being. And so this, uh, this was a meta-analysis kind of study that looked at a bunch of survey data from different surveys all over the place where they asked the same people over time how happy they were. And so there was four surveys they could find that did this with a big body of people. And what they found is that if you're happy now, um, if you say you're happy now, you're more likely to be wrong about how you said you were happy like last year or in the past. So... Um, and, and you you downgrade your happiness if you're happy now. But if you're sort of in the middle, you, you're more accurately remember how you replied to the same survey years before. And so what they what seems to imply here is that happiness has a kind of progression in the way it's like modeled in our minds. And so unless you're unless like problems are being resolved and things are getting better, you can't feel like you're being happy. And so um so uh so so your present happiness clouds your memory of the past and whether or not you were happy before. And, and thinking you're happy now makes you think you were less happy than you actually said you were even a few years ago in the past. So very interesting um, study from this uh, in this article um, about the way that, that our current emotions cloud our memory. Um, anyway, that was once again from um, the Association for Psychological Science. And uh, here is the Saiku for this week that that inspired Happiness falling on everything, autumn snow. Happiness falling on everything, autumn snow. That is the Saiku for this week, and that is the show for this week. Thanks for joining us at the early time. Um, we do have, I do have a Little League game tonight, and um, we actually had enough players, so everybody is healthy enough from the uh, whatever virus was going around where we're back on the field, and uh, we'll be playing tonight. Uh, next week's guest on the Rattlecast... I'm going to do the prompt first. Next week's prompt for the Rattlecast, and this is by David James, um, and uh, today's guest, of course, and this is the prompt for next week. Here you go. Um, Start with the first line from a James Tate poem and write a poem or prose poem that incorporates dialogue within the narrative. See where your imagination takes you. And, um, and then he suggests, too, that after you take that first line, so, um, and he has suggestions. So here, here are five... Uh, suggestions he gave, but you can do a different James Tate poem if you'd like. But his uh, suggestions are, we dug that tunnel with spoons. So start start there and keep writing. Um, a huge lizard was discovered drinking. Gabriella was lying on her back naked. Someone hit me on the head with a book. Or sometimes you hear a xylophone. So those are the five suggestions he included, but but take a, take a snippet at the beginning of a James Tate poem and run with it, not knowing where it's going to go, and uh, practice that that process that James or David James uses where um, he just lets a poem run and sees where it takes him 
And, um, and then what he does is he'll take the quote, so like we dug that tunnel with spoons, he'll make that the title of the poem and then say after James Tate and then continue so the title reads in. Um, that's your prompt for next week. So uh, take the first line from a James Tate poem and turn that into a poem. And um, uh, that should be a fun one. And hopefully I'll be back on the mend. I'll be able to write one too. And uh, the guest for next week on the Rattlecast is going to be... Uh, Nicole Caruso Garcia with her first book Oxblood so um, Nicole's been published in Rattle um, I think we published her maybe twice in Poets Respond and in issue number 70 she's a wonderful poet a lot of formalist leanings um, really great stuff from Nicole um, been waiting for her first book for a long time Oxblood to come out she's going to be the guest on Rattlecast number 169 it's going to be at the regular time Monday November 21st um, at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, like normal. That's Rattlecast number 169. Uh, hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.